What might the blue wave mean for renewables tax legislation? Let's find out. Hi, this is Alana Knopp, senior reporter with New Project Media. My guest today is Judy Kwok, an attorney with Mince's Energy and Sustainable Practice. Judy specializes in tax-efficient strategies for renewable energy developers and investors. Prior to joining Mintz, Judy served as Vice President, Tax Planning, and Tax Counsel for GE Energy Financial Services. Judy, thanks so much for being here. I'm thrilled to be here, Alana. Thank you for having me. Just to give our listeners a little background, in December, Congress passed a year-end tax package that extended certain tax credits for, for renewable energy. I was wondering if you could expand on this a little bit. Certainly. So this latest set of uh, tax extenders passed in uh, December, late December 2020, and that this was part of the bigger COVID-19 relief package that everyone refers to as the coronavirus economic relief bill. And the salient part of the tax extenders was that they moved the beginning of construction deadline ahead one year from January 1st, 2021 to January 1st, 2022 for the wind production tax credit, which, was, which is phasing out and is currently at 60%. So the PTCs for energy produced by a variety of other modalities that includes closed loop biomass, open loop biomass, geothermal, landfill gas, trash, qualified hydropower and marine and hydrokinetic renewable energy facilities. Those were also extended by one year And the ITC, the investment tax credit under Section 48 for projects where taxpayers have elected the ITC in lieu of the PTC, uh, that was also extended by one year. In addition to those extenders, uh, there were also extenders for the investment tax credit. Uh, For solar deals, uh, and solar is eligible for the investment tax credit, but not the production tax credit, the beginning of construction deadline Uh, For the 26% and the 22% ITC was extended for two years. So that's from January 1st, 2021 to January 1st, 2023 for the 26% ITC. And the January 1st, 2022 deadline moved to January 1st, 2024 uh, for the 22% solar ITC. And as as you may recall, the the full ITC uh, without the phase out is 30%. And the place and service deadline for those projects also went from two years, uh, January 1st, 2024 to January 1st, 2026. Similar extensions were also given for um, other modalities that qualify for the um, ITC, including fiber optic solar, qualified fuel cell, qualified small wind property. And there were also extensions for the 10% ITC for ground thermal, qualified microturbine, and combined heat and power system property. So that's quite a mouthful. Um, In extension to those extenders, there was also a new investment tax credit put out specifically for offshore wind and also for waste to heat property. Yeah, that's definitely quite a package. Um, So a lot went on in, in, in December, clearly, and big news for renewables in general. Judy, you've called the extenders package a relatively unambitious piecemeal approach to renewable tax legislation. Are we about to head into a blue wave that could bring with it the implementation of a more ambitious overhaul of the renewable tax system? Or are we destined to continue on with this piecemeal approach? Well, first of all, um, 
the piecemeal approach brings a, basically unlimited thrills to renewables, tax lawyers everywhere. Because the, the way you qualify for the ITC and the, and the PTC uh, is that you have to start construction. And in order to start construction by December 31st of whatever deadline everyone is rushing madly to meet, um, you have to either start physical work or you have to incur 5% of the costs of the project. So uh, traditionally, if the legislation doesn't come in time, um, you're waiting and waiting with like bated breath for just uh, as December 31st comes closer and closer uh, to see if the statute gets extended. And that's like ex very, very exciting. And I'm sure everyone would be like very, very sad in, in the renewables tax bar if that stopped. Um, so on, on some sort of you know, personal level, and I think a lot of people feel the same way, this is like a very, very exciting part of practice for at least for the small percentage of people that's renewables tax lawyers. But on, on a more serious note, it is hard to say historically, um, it is hard to say whether this approach will keep on being the favored path. Historically, uh, the approach has generally been piecemeal. In some situations, in some years, it's been in fact retroactive. And, and there, there are hints that it doesn't necessarily have to be this way. Uh, there's a lot of proposed legislation out there that says that perhaps yearly extenders may not be the way to go. Uh, for example, even now, there is a proposed five-year extension of the Section 45Q carbon capture credit. Um, so there, is a, there, there was something proposed in 2020 specifically relating to that. That's still outstanding. 45Q was not extended during the December 2020 legislation. Even for wind and solar, there are hints that longer extensions um, have, uh, have been on at least some developers' minds. There's a, there's a proposed bill, for example, called the Sunshine Forever Act, which, which is actually a little inaccurate. It would just extend the solar ITC by 10 years, not forever. And then there's another <laughs> act called the it, I mean, it does seem to be overselling a little bit. And, and then well, there's no. another act called the Renewable Energy Extension Act, um, and that's less ambitiously named. But, but that gives the ITC an extra five years for solar. So it, there are certainly legislators out there who believe that the, the market would deal better with um, a more stable system where... Um, where you get longer extensions, not extensions that last for 12 to 24 months. And in, as I think we will talk about later on this podcast, uh, there is this concept um, in sort of more esoteric, wide-ranging proposals where the PTC and the ITC doesn't have a fixed date of expiration at all, but rather uh, th those would just end or phase out when greenhouse gas emissions go down to a certain threshold. So um, while, and in addition to sort of those proposals, I also want to add that most of the legislation in December 2020 was just traditional extenders. But there are hints that the legislature is open to to new concepts. Um, it was a really big deal that offshore wind got its own ITC. And it was a really big deal that there was a waste heat ITC implemented as well. So that shows there are hints of something more that, that the tax law can absorb beyond just changing the date on, by, by one year or by two years to existing legislation. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to roll back for a minute to something you said earlier. You know, there's been renewed focus on carbon capture 
as a really critical component of any climate plan. Um, yet, as you mentioned, the proposed five-year extension of the Section 45Q carbon capture credit is still outstanding. So what gives, Judy? <laughs> well, I guess part of it is that 45Q is like just nowhere near expiring. So the urgency um, to stop it from expiring is not really there because the start of construction deadline for 45Q is 2026. So that's sort of the easy answer. But there are also sort of more fundamental aspects of 45Q that separate it a little bit from the traditional renewables like wind and solar. One point um, that some have made about 45Q is that it's simply not as much on the renewables radar because a lot of the initial interest in 45Q, at least at this point, is by oil and gas companies. And that lobbying strategy for 45Q carbon capture may have a somewhat different lobbying path, a different lobbying strategy than the lobbying approach being taken for more traditional renewables modalities like wind and solar. The second aspect of this is that even putting all that aside, um, the tax equity market in 45Q is way less developed than wind and solar. So the statute, we don't think about it this way immediately because the statute has been around for years. It's been around since 2017. But the truth is that the guidance on partnership flips and beginning of construction that was needed to give tax equity investors the certainty they needed to actually be real tax equity investors, that only came out this February, which unfortunately was like six weeks before like the pandemic sort of put a freeze on a lot of activities. So mm -hmm. I believe that as time goes on, as the tax equity market opens up and intensifies, there may be more interest in a 45Q extension. Well, that's certainly good news. And just going back to the offshore wind ITC, I mean, that was obviously big news um, that they, you know, offshore wind facilities got their own ITC. But as you've pointed out, Bigger news for the industry came from the IRS on New Year's Eve when they extended the four-year safe harbor window to 10 years. In other words, uh, both Congress and the Treasury can rewrite the rules to accommodate the evolution of the renewable energy sector. Could this possibly suggest an indefinite offshore wind ITC? My first reaction is no, but let me, um, let me give some background on that. So the, the, the statute... Um, says that for qualified offshore wind facilities, they get their own ITC and it doesn't phase down from 30%. And all you have to do is start construction by January 1st, 2026. So if you were a normal wind project, you would have to start construction at six, and this is at like 60%. You would have to start construction by January 1st, 2022. Um, and so that's a big, distinction because you get an extra four years. So that's the statute. Um, also on New Year's Eve, the IRS, so this isn't Congress, this is just the, the IRS issuing its regulatory guidance. They issued something called Notice 2021-05, and that extends the four-year window. So projects under IRS guidance, um, they have to place in service in order to satisfy what's called the continuous efforts or continuous construction requirement. And so they have to place in service by four years after start of construction. And 
for a lot of renewables projects, in fact, probably all major renewables projects, those take a really, really long time to develop. And four years is not enough. Whereas it might be enough for a, an onshore wind project, it's not enough when you're trying to like drill into the ocean floor. Apparently that takes a lot more than four years. So I would think. Guidance, but <laughs> apparently, apparently it's a big deal to drill into the ocean floor. I don't know, I'm just a lawyer here. But like, I mean, you're, you're attaching it to cables or you're like a, putting a really big anchor. In it. Apparently it's very complicated, which I can, I can get behind. And, and apparently also people really hate these projects um, who live around them. So there's a lot of like not in my backyard movements around offshore wind. So you have to sort of deal with those people as well. So it's not just the technical aspect of it. It's like socializing the surrounding people and getting the lease cleared is apparently, and I'm not using the right terminology, but in layperson's terms, even to a layperson, the, these are very, very complex uh, regulatory issues in offshore. So four years is not enough. Uh, under current guidance, um, the you get... 10 years if it's an offshore project. So in, so you can actually um, start construction and then as long as you place in service the project within 10 years, you've met the continuity safe harbor. Alternatively, if you want to take more than 10 years, you're no longer in the safe harbor. Uh, and this was true under the existing regime too. But, but now you have to prove that you've continuously made efforts or continuously constructed the project. And that's very complicated because it's not very clear from the law what continuous means. Um, you know, does, does it mean that you need to, if, if it's continuous efforts, does that mean you need to like make phone calls every week? Do you need to do something more complex than that? Do you need to sign contracts? If it's physical work, you know, does that mean you need to constantly, does someone constantly have to be working on the project, either on-site or off-site, in order to qualify? Um, can you take breaks? Um, you know, there, it's not clearly understood what continuity means. So that's why extending the safe harbor from four years to 10 years is like a really, really, really big deal just because of the nature of these projects. Um, so that said, both of these new rules point to a fixed ending for the ITC, and there's no indication um, that it could become indefinite. And, and it's, it, I don't necessarily think that this shows an appetite for an indefinite credit. Um, but what it does show is that 10 years, you know, five years, seven years, 10 years, 14 years for an offshore project goes by really, 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 really fast. And it may be as time goes on that we go from 10 years to something larger. And depending on how the offshore wind market develops, it, it may be some projects take more than 10 years. On the other hand, if it turns out um, the regulatory obstacles become somehow simpler, I could see you know, it's, it's possible, although maybe not probable, that there could be a scale back of how long the continuity safe harbor is, you know, it may, may be in the next turn of legislation or the next piece of IRS guidance. Um, there, there might be new data available that might change the regime because it is still a developing industry. Yeah, that's a really great point because we are seeing a lot of regulatory uh, evolution and um, even just things like project siting has, has really come a long way. Um, so I do think that, especially with the new Biden administration and just kind of a renewed focus on getting 
these projects done and the investments to, to back those projects up. Um, I, I think you're right about that. I guess we'll, we'll have to watch that space and, and see what happens um, it, with, with that particular, with those particular rules. Um, so switching gears a little bit, um, the extenders package was relatively silent on energy storage technologies. Yet storage is clearly becoming a, a key part of renewables projects. Groups like ESA, the Energy Storage Association, and others have been lobbying for a standalone tax credit for quite some time. Why isn't legislation keeping up with the speed of storage integration? And do you foresee an expanded storage ITC regime coming down the pike? Yes. So to your last question, uh, yes, I believe expanding the tax incentives, particularly with an ITC for energy storage technologies is the way of the future. In many ways, battery storage, similar to offshore, offshore wind, is um, it's a technology that originally was on the periphery of the mainstream market, but it's becoming a bigger and bigger part of the renewables industry because it can smooth the imbalances between supply and demand that affect renewables facilities. And that's more important now than ever, especially, um, for example, given what's happening in Texas. There are at least three bills from 2020, um, the Green Act, the Widen Amendment, and the Clean Energy Innovation and Deployment Act. And you know, one act and one proposed bill in 2019 that contained a separate 30% ITC for energy storage equipment. And that includes energy for conversion to electricity using batteries, compressed air, pumped hydropower, hydrogen storage, fuel cells, um, superconducting magnets, and you know, anything else that's blessed by the Secretary of Energy. So these are very, very broad ranging bills that emphasize the importance of energy storage to, to the energy market. Um, one reason, and, and to preface, to, I, I want to make clear that um, I think that battery storage is definitely on the radar. It's on everyone's radar in terms of next steps legislatively for renewables tax. And it was a bit of a surprise, at least to me personally, when the COVID-19 economic relief bill did not contain a separate ITC for battery storage. That said, um, I want to emphasize that battery storage is not totally absent from the regime at this time. And maybe that's what's causing um, a little decrease in the urgency that otherwise would be there. So currently there are rules under the ITC regulations that include storage devices as solar energy property. Um, but they're subject to these restrictions called the dual use rules. And that means that the storage device is ITC eligible only if its use of non-solar sources does not exceed 25% of the total energy input during the measuring period. So if the use of non-solar sources is 25% or less of total energy input, but above 0%, then you have to prorate the ITC. In addition, there's this question of whether you can actually get um, an ITC for a battery component that's hooked up to wind as opposed to solar. And the regulations actually do include storage devices in their definition of wind energy property, but there's some school of thought potentially that that's sort of deadwood because wind energy property doesn't actually, I mean, aside from offshore, but these regs are old, um, wind energy property doesn't 
get the ITC anymore, whereas at the time that the regs came out, they did. So there's a little bit of ambiguity as to whether um, batteries, even if they're hooked up to a wind site, would be eligible under the existing rules. And naturally, um, a, a part of the a key part of the regime is not just batteries that are hooked up to wind and solar, but um, other battery components as well. So I definitely agree that there is a lot of focus on um, tax incentives for batteries going forward, because I think that's potentially the next step, um, especially after an offshore ITC was added. Sure, you make a lot of great points there. Um, sw switching gears a little bit, um, I want you to talk about the proposed clean energy production credit, um, which could replace the PTC as part of the Clean Energy for America Act. Um, I know it has no set expiration date and it would phase out once national greenhouse gas emissions decrease to a specified threshold. Could this concept be incorporated into an extension of the ITC or PTC? For sure. I think this could definitely be incorporated into either the ITC or the PTC. Um, and, and that would sort of give both of the incentives a, a, a longer life, probably, you know, depending on what the threshold was, of course, but I think the intention would be to give them a much longer life than they currently have. Um, and of course, the point of renewables from a policy perspective is to decrease greenhouse gas emissions. So in many ways, that's a great idea. I think from the point of administrability, um, you know, one might wonder, you know, would this create a more orderly uh, process where you just try to safe harbor property or start construction physically. Um, and perhaps it could, but it depends on when the greenhouse gas emissions report comes out. For example, if the reports always come out by June, then we know by June whether we have another year of credit or not. And we have six months to do whatever we need to do to start construction on our project. But also the devil's in the details. And if for some reason the report doesn't come out on June and the report just kind of lingers until December 31st or worse is retroactive, then at some point as we get closer and closer to the greenhouse gas emissions threshold as a country, we could effectively be in the same exciting position I talked about earlier where we're sort of waiting around in the, the waning days of the calendar year to decide whether or not to pull the trigger on startup construction activities. Sure, and you've, you've talked about um, at least four bills proposed last year uh, that would give taxpayers cash in lieu of ITCs and PTCs in one form or another. Is there an appetite for a cash for credits paradigm? And do you think this is being partially driven by the COVID-19 pandemic? Yes and yes. So, so the answer to the first question is like everyone always loves cash. It gives them so much more flexibility. Cash is always awesome. Everyone loves getting money. Okay, so it's I won't argue with have... you there, Judy. <laughs> well, I mean, I, whenever I I read this, um, you know, things about refundability, I always think about that scene in Wayne's World where like he's he's buying the guitar. <laughs> and he's like, do, do you take cash? So. <laughs> So that, that, that's always running through my mind whenever I think of the, the grant. Um, if, if that were to happen, that would put us back during uh, 2009, the 2008 economic crisis. Back then, a, a lot of tax equity investors did not have tax capacity. And what happened was that instead of getting 
uh, a credit, you could get a cash grant equivalent to 30% of the basis of your qualifying property. And, um, you know, as long as the project was placed in service before a certain deadline, like 2009 or 2010, then it it would qualify. Um, Sorry, as long as it was, um, yeah, it had to be placed in service by 2009 or 2010, or it had to be, eventually it got extended to 2013 and 2017. And it had to have a 2009 or 2010 beginning of construction. So the grant was huge. um, And it's expired, but the idea is still in people's minds that we could go back to that regime. And it's interesting that even in limited, in the limited context of tribal communities, um, this, it was, there was a proposal even before the pandemic to figure something else out for um, tribal governments and sort of get them, let them be able to monetize uh, ITCs and PTCs. The, Big um, motivation, though, as you said, is the pandemic. And there's, it, it could be very well the case that the pandemic decreases the tax capacity of tax equity investors. And as soon as the pandemic hit, um, the, the idea of refundability was immediately being talked about, you know, among people in the industry. I mean, I was getting calls, you know, at, at, at you know, as soon as, COVID became, as soon as COVID became um, clearly an economic factor, I was getting calls about whether I thought it was likely that we would go back to a 1603 grant world. I think that if, if the grant were to return, um, it would be interesting to see how it's implemented. I think that in, there's a big difference between having the treasury implement the grant and having the IRS implement the grant. Uh, it's interesting that um, most of the proposals this time around are not administered by Treasury. They're administered by having a, a, a specific refundability provision that just makes the credit refundable, which means it's being administered by the IRS. And that creates, I, I think in some ways that makes the rules for um, when the when the refundable credit is, you know, sort of considered to be um, available to taxpayers, it, it, it sort of commits the IRS um, to sort of following its own law and, you know, its, its own positions. Uh, with, with Treasury, the situation potentially is a little bit different because they're not bound by the same uh, administrative positions as the IRS or may choose not to follow those positions. So it, it does change the posture at the margins, especially with, you know, sit, especially with situations where um, the taxpayer is taking a little bit more of an aggressive position, you know, for example, with developers fees, um, it could move the needle whether you have a treasury administered grant or an IRS administered uh, refundable credit. Yeah, and which is a great segue into transferability, something that you've talked about, um, which is a paradigm where equity investors in a renewables project can transfer the corresponding tax credits to folk with no equity stake in the project. You've described this as something of a fringe concept. How would transferability reconfigure the economics around renewables projects? 
I think it would completely change the landscape of tax equity deals. So just to give some background on exactly what transferability means, there are bills out there that would allow a taxpayer to transfer all or part of its ITC or PTC to what's called an eligible project partner. So that includes people with ownership interests in the property or the facility, but it also includes people who provide construction services or people who are uh, vendors of the equipment. It includes people who provide transmission services or distribution services, um, PPA off-takers, lenders. So this is like a wide range of people that we, you know, you would never think of as being eligible to take the credit. Now, I mean, at, at this point in time, it, it's, you, you can't even transfer freely between two partners in a flip partnership structure without sort of really altering the economics. It's, it's very important that the economics um, and the credits are aligned under the safe harbor rules for uh, when, how you can allocate tax items. So that the transferability statute would completely alter all of that. Um, there's, so the two acts, um, one of them is the Clean Energy Innovation Deployment Act of 2020. So that's, these are proposed bills. And then the other one is the Renewable Energy Transferability Act. And you know, there's, there's variations in whether they apply to PTCs, ITCs, 45Q, um, you know, do, do they cover deductions? So it, th this would completely change how deals are done because the relationships between all of these people, like the, even the lenders, construction service providers, EPCs, um, the, the tax equity partner, the cash equity partner, all of that would have to be reconfigured um, economically. And it's, I don't think it's clearly understood now how that would change things. I don't think most people believe that there is a serious possibility of transferability going through, but it is something to keep in the back of our minds because there are proposals that mention it. Um, it's, it's not even clear to me whether it's a positive for many people on the market, but for better or worse, it is, the idea at least is out there. There have been occasional uh, proposals, and you've talked about this, um, to replace the existing ITC and PTC entirely, entirely and build drastically different renewables tax regimes. Can you touch on some of these proposals, and do you get a sense that any of these proposals would be supported by a critical mass? Yeah. Um, so there are two baskets of these proposals, and I'll cover both of them. The first basket is, is carrots, and then the second basket is sticks. So the first basket is we want to make the carrots more intense. Um, and so one example of that is the Clean Energy for America Act. And that has a lot of proposals to make the carrots bigger. So for example, instead of the current PTC, they're going to have something called the Clean Energy Production Credit. And you don't limit it to just the specific types of modalities listed in the current section 45. It can be basically anything that reduces that, it, it can be basically anything that has some level of carbon capture and decreases greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and you have a similar credit for transportation fuel that, um, is in, that, that reduces greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, similarly, um, you can replace the current ITC with what's called a, an investment credit 
that's, um, that fluctuates based on the anticipated greenhouse gas emissions rate on the property. And then there are additional credits for carbon capture property and energy storage property. And of course, if, if emissions are higher than expected, then there's a recapture. So those, so those credits would be drastically reconfigured to be much, much broader in nature. Um, and that plan is accompanied by other, uh, other carrots. One is um, there used to be this thing called 48C, which is called the Qualifying Advanced Energy Project Program. And that provides a credit for investments in facility, facilities that manufacture some types of renewable energy property. So that, and I think these are like limited in dollar amount. So that dollar amount was used up like 10 years ago or some very long period of time ago. So one plan is to, one part of the plan is to give them another $5 billion. Um, another aspect is to establish a tax credit for clean energy bonds. And those are bonds that are used to fund um, so the government issues them and then they're used to fund renewable energy projects. And you know, that's, that concept also appears in, you know, other sort of specific modalities, um, other, other proposals for specific modalities like biogas and manure recovery. So that concept is also out there. Um, it's, it's, you know, these are very, very, very renewables, favorable concepts. So, that's one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, you have um, the stick. And the stick is basically a carbon tax. So, you know, many economists believe that a carbon tax is the best way to fix the environment and you know, induce climate change. And those proposals are actually out there, although I don't think they're extremely popular. And you know, I've, I haven't come across any serious sense in the market that they could actually happen. But again, they're, they're out there and the idea is sort of floating in the ether. So one example of a proposal of a carbon tax, and this, this is called the America Wins Act. For, that's, one, that's just one of the many, multiple proposals. So that would put a tax on a taxable carbon substance, that's coal, petroleum, natural gas, um, that's sold by the manufacturer, the importer. And then they would also tax carbon, in in carbon intensive imports. Um, another version of the proposal would also contain a carbon tax, but the carbon tax is based on the carbon dioxide emission level of the fuel. And there's also this additional fee if there's like fluorinated greenhouse gases or if they're emitting greenhouse gases above certain thresholds. And then there's also, there's also another version of that proposal that, that's sort of a combination of the two where, you know, there's, there's a and the use, sale, or transfer of products from crude oil, natural gas, or coal if they're used to emit greenhouse gases. And there's a specified rate um, that fluctuates based on whether certain emissions targets are met. So especially in a post-pandemic or like during pandemic environment, the appetite for this type of stick is probably limited. Um, but I think that the fact that the idea is out there, um, you know, you never know when the climate might change and people might be searching for sticks for whatever, you know, political or economic reason. And th this is something that's potentially in the toolbox. Yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on. So uh, f finally, Judy, the big question, is there an appetite for more extensive tax reform around renewable energy projects? And what would that reform look like? 
So I'm going, I, I think this opens the door for the, the really technical, like the tax technical aspect of the discussion. And I can actually hear like, everyone logging off like right now <laughs> at this point, um, because it, it, it actually deals with um, technical tax issues that are not specific to the credit. And, and I think, you know, m many people have an appetite to listen to stuff about the credit, but, but only like very, only very dedicated practitioners are going to be interested in the super technical right. aspect of this. But it is very important um, because there are very powerful tax tools for encouraging renewables investment. And these involve changes to the code that are outside of tax credits or even deductions. Um, so for like the people who are still on the call, there, there, these are actually really, really potentially, um, these are potentially changes that could make a difference if they were implemented. So one change, um, and some of these have already been proposed, some of them I, I'm just thinking about for the first time. One change, and this is for example in the Green Act, um, that involves expanding the publicly traded partnership rules so that if there are renewables focused um, par publicly traded partnerships, then they can avoid being taxed as corporations. In general, you don't want to be taxed as a corporation because then you're subject to an additional layer of corporate tax. Under the existing rule, if um, a publicly traded corporation's gross income falls into certain categories of qualifying in income, then it's not taxed as a corporation. But in general, if a partnership is publicly traded, then it is going to be taxed as a corporation. So there are proposals to treat um, renewables-based sources of income and gains. For example, like income from selling power from a qualified energy resource, like a, like a wind farm. So the proposal would be to treat that income or certain 45Q um, project income or you know, solar project income as being um, part of that carve out. So you can have a publicly traded partnership that just earns mainly that type of income and it, you can just treat it as a partnership for tax purposes. So that would be a game changer. Um, another one is there's, there's this concept of the base erosion and anti-abuse tax. And that generally is excess of, you know, five to 10% of modified taxable income. Um, and, and so that's regular taxable income, less deductions from payments to foreign persons and the percentage of NOLs based on a given year. So that amount over the regular tax liability. So it imposes, um, basically an additional, uh, something similar to an alternative minimum tax. And in calculating the regular tax liability for, um, it's called the BEAT. So in, in calculating regular tax liability for BEAT purposes, specific credits are added back, including 80% of PTCs, ITCs, and 45Q carbon capture credits. But for taxable years beginning after 2025, there is no add back. So what would be the favorable response would be including a 100% add back to regular tax liability for these credits for all taxable years um, and you know, not have the add back be limited or have its end after 2025. And that, that could make a big difference to um, tax equity investors, which frequently do have beat issues because they are frequently very large multinationals. Uh, finally, uh, one aspect um, of 
the tax equity market that is just frequently a limiter on when tax equity investments are made is the passive activity loss rules. So section 469 um, applies to individuals, closely held corporations, some non-corporate persons, and that disallows the aggregate net loss from passive activities for a taxable year, as well as most tax credits from passive activities in excess of the regular tax liability allocable to passive activities. And for purposes of 469, a passive activity is any activity that involves the conduct of a trader business where a taxpayer does not materially participate. And this actually prevents a lot of non-corporate taxpayers from being tax equity investors because a tax equity investment typically uh, does not give a lot of activity or managerial input from the tax equity investors. So if an individual lacks the passive activity income to offset passive credits, um, the tax equity investment is going to be much, much less economically advantageous for that individual. So if you were to carve out tax equity interests from the passive activity rules, even to a limited extent, uh, that could really boost tax equity investments um, in, in non-corporate non taxpayers. Wow. You've given us a lot to think about. A lot, a lot to mull over and a lot of food for thought. What, what a great conversation, really insightful and informative. Thank you so much, Judy, for joining us. And I hope you come back. Uh, if you'll have me, you know, I, I, I love being on this, on the show. And, you know, like your, your questions do keep me on my toes. So you know, thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, well, thank you so much, Judy. It's a pleasure. And uh, for New Project Media, this is Alana Knopf. Hope to see you all soon.